Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. The United Nations says Israel's offensive into Rafah presents a terrifying prospect for Palestinians there. Chinese envoy has lamented the incomplete execution of the new Minsk agreement, urging parties in Ukraine crisis to reflect. And international influencers living in China are hitting back as they face a fresh round of U-intentioned Western accusations. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. The United Nations Human Rights Office says an Israeli offensive into Rafah in the Gaza Strip presents a terrifying prospect for Palestinians there. A spokesperson for the office warned that an extremely high number of civilians, mostly women and children, would be killed or injured. Israel has described Rafah as the last remaining Hamas stronghold in the territory and signaled ground offensive may soon target the town on the southern edge of the Gaza Strip. More than half of the Gaza 2.3 million population is now crammed into Rafah. So to talk more on the recent development in Gaza, let's have Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. It's my pleasure. First of all, what are the stated objectives of the recent Israeli military operations in Gaza, focusing on the targeting of the southern city of Rafah? How do these objectives align with Israel's broader strategic goals in the region? I think the very uh, direct objective of Israel's recent military operation in the southern Gaza, especially uh, against the city of Rafah, is to is to uh, eliminate, so partly eliminate the Hamas presence or Hamas network in the Gaza Strip. Uh, of course, because according to the Israeli very strategic, as you mentioned, the very strategic goals uh, after this round of the Israeli Hamas uh, uh, war erupted in the October the seventh, that Israeli has already been continually claimed that uh, they hope to eliminate the Hamas network and to damage uh, the Hamas presence and then to establish the very security uh, zone in the in the Gaza Strip to ensure the safety of the Israeli uh, southern border. So uh, under, against this backdrop, it is very necessary for Israel to continue their military operations because during the past weeks, Israel has already uh, finished or nearly finished their military operations in the uh, northern Gaza and central Gaza, especially around the city of the Han Yunis in the northern Gaza. The Gaza city has been immediately uh, cleared by the Israeli presence. So now the focus upon the very final uh, city, especially the Rafah, which is a very southern southern city uh, bordering Egypt. Mm-hmm. And uh, given that uh, during the past weeks, Israel has already finished their military operation and start, uh, I mean, the intelligence and information uh, connecting and analysis, uh, I think maybe from Israeli perspective, they hope to uh, continue their military operations in the Rafah to, to finally uh, to realize their goal of so-called eliminating the Hamas presence there. So that is why I think they started the military operation in the uh, southern Gaza Strip and especially in the Rafah city. 
Speaking of Israel's goal in the region, the Prime Minister's office has stated the necessity of targeting specific areas in Gaza to achieve the goal of eliminating Hamas, as you mentioned. Can you discuss the potential humanitarian consequences of such targeted strikes, considering the densely populated nature of the region? Yes, yes, you are right, because uh, given, the, given the military operation actually is on the process of starting, uh, the very, very potential humanitarian consequences of this uh, targeted strikes and other military operations could be very, could to be intensified. Because we have to know that on the one hand, as you say, uh, that uh, the Gaza Strip is a very, very uh, densely populated area, even before this, this round of the conflict erupted. But on the other hand, we have to know that after uh, during the past uh, months, especially uh, when Israel started their military operations in the northern and central Gaza Strip, Israeli ordered or encouraged or even forced that the majority of the local civilians in the northern and central Gaza Strip to move to the southern Gaza Strip. That led to the density uh, of the of the southern Gaza Strip, especially in the Rafa city, are much, much more uh, populated and much, much more densely populated. That would become a very, very major problem. So uh, Israel also realized that uh, it should be a problem, that if the war started, it would lead to much more uh, serious humanitarian crisis. So that is why Israel, for example, during the past days, they started to show that they are hoping to work uh, with the international society to settle this problem. For example, they say they will start, uh, they will, they will uh, establish the, the so-called humanitarian <coughs> humanitarian field with about uh, 22,000 uh, tents uh, uh, provided from the international society. They say, okay, they encourage the civilians in the in the southern. Uh, Gaza Strip, especially the, in the Rafah city, to go out of the Rafah city to go back to the central and northern Rafah city after, of course, after the Israeli military uh, forces check and uh, monitor. But this is, so this cannot uh, settle the, the whole problem. I mean, because they are facing the war, the people, in the, especially the Palestinian people, they moving from one per, one area to another, and then they have to go back and other to to go back to other uh, areas where. Uh, are where the, the war is still going on. So I think it would uh, totally damage the balance of the humanitarian assistance mm-hmm. uh, network in the Gaza Strip. And also, on the other hand, it would lead to much more uncertainties and much more uh, uh, crisis and dangers for the local civilians, especially Palestinian civilians there. So I don't think it is a, it is a good uh, choice uh, for uh, for the local Palestinian people's who wish, who had the wishes, who harbored the wishes to find uh, very safe areas to settle their family, to settle their own lives. It would be the very dangerous signal in the future for the humanitarian uh, situation in the Gaza Strip. Professor, speaking of humanitarian consequences or the disasters in the region, within Israel, the voices of opposition against military operations in the Gaza Strip have been growing louder. Recently, Israeli citizens have been organizing protests and demonstrations on the streets and demanding the government's resignation and calling for new parliamentary elections. What's your take on the level of domestic opposition within Israel? Yes, so the voices of the demonstration now uh, grows, significantly grows, uh, especially in the past weeks. But uh, we cannot say that all of these voices 
are against the war, mm-hmm. are against uh, are voicing that the war should be immediately suspended or should be immediately ended because the opposition voices are very complicated. Uh, on the one hand, yes, there were some of them uh, hoped, of course, there are some of the left wing or the central uh, central camp wing, they hoped that the war should be suspended, that the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and other militant groups in the Gaza Strip should be reached in the exchange of the, uh, ho- uh, the, of the held hostages in the Hamas and also from uh, uh, to, in the exchange of the Israeli prisoners, uh, Palestinian prisoners held in the Israeli prison. Of course, there were some kind of these voices, but then there were still some other opposition voices. Some claim that uh, that uh, Israel should become more assertive. They believe they hope to speak their uh, opposition uh, voices because they believe now the Israelis obey too much of the international willingness, obey too much of the humanitarian course. They believe that Israeli military forces should ignore the international court, the international voices to launch much a stronger attack, especially airstrike attacks, uh, without the regard, uh, re- regard of the humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so that is why we witnessed uh, some of the demonstrations uh, be- uh, in the areas between Israel and the Gaza Strip borders to, uh, with the attempts to stop the, the international uh, vehicles uh, uh, team, the humanitarian vehicle team to the Gaza Strip because they believe that the, the, they should stop all the, the, the humanitarian assistance to the Gaza Strip. There were also some other voices. They believe that the government should, especially wartime cabinet led by Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, should be suspended. Should they should he should step down? But these voices uh, are attributed to their uh, dissatisfaction uh, against uh, the Netanyahu's responsibilities in this war. They believe Netanyahu should go out of the power and to to restart to start the very uh, investigation of how this war uh, started, how the Israeli intelligence and military forces they made the mistakes at the very beginning of this war. So uh, actually, we cannot say that uh, all of the demonstrations are. Uh, are for the voices of peace. Actually, even maybe much louder voices. They they they, they hope there's a much uh, much more assertive and much more uh, negative uh, situation in the future. So I I think that is why the complicating is really internal politics. They would mm. determine the future of how the world will go towards. As you mentioned, Israel's military actions in Rafah has also faced significant opposition and criticism abroad uh, from, for example, the United States, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, etc., which also led to criticism within Israel on current Netanyahu administration. Then how do you interpret the reactions from various international actors? What are the key concerns and interests driving these reactions? I think international actors, uh, majority of the international actors, they hope the war should be suspended. But uh, uh, but one thing, uh, uh, the very they have the very clear division, because uh, from the perspective of the United States, uh, some Western countries, of course, they hope that the war uh, should be uh, suspended. But uh, uh, from their perspective, that the future government in the Gaza Strip should not be continued as the war started, as before the war started. So they hope that the Hamas and the Jihad, the Palestinian Jihad, they should be uh, ousted from the uh, power structure. And then, uh, against uh, this principle, under this principle, the new government, especially led by the Palestinian Authority from the West Bank, uh, that should be directly in- inserted to the uh, Gaza Strip, 
uh, to ensure that it's really safety. But then uh, some other regional countries, especially the Turkey and Qatar, they believe that uh, the, the Hamas should be maintained in the, in the future government. Maybe some measures should be taken by the Palestinians, their people, their own willingness, the political willingness should be perspective. So, I mean, all of them, of course, uh, uh, nearly all of them, all, all of the international actors, they hope that the war should be suspended, should be ended. But they have different voices. I mean, they have different ideas. They have different principles. And under this pr- different principles, they now maybe they hope the war should be ended. But then in the future, how the war should uh, continue and uh, when the war should end it and how, the, how this war should be ended. And, uh, and after this war ended and how the future political structure should be constructed would be the very, very deeply rooted problem for different actors. So I don't think uh, the war ended will end everything. Maybe the war end will start will become a new starting point for the for more crisis and more uncertainty in the Gaza Strip, especially inside the different relations between Palestinian groups. Thanks, Dr. Wang, for your insights and time, and happy Chinese New Year. That was Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwestern University in Xi'an, China. You're listening to Road Today. Stay tuned. You are listening to Road Today. Chinese envoy Zhang Jun has urged a reflection on the Ukraine crisis after the new Minsk agreement signed in 2015 at a UN Security Council meeting. The permanent representative to the UN stressed the agreement's binding nature, emphasizing its full implementation for peaceful resolution. Despite its recognition, Zhang lamented the agreement's incomplete execution, leading to further conflict. Cautioned against unilateral actions, urging NATO to prioritize diplomacy over military posturing. He also underscored China's commitment to multilateralism and global peace efforts. Zhang expressed readiness to collaborate for Ukraine's political settlement and international security. To provide insights into this matter, I had the opportunity to discuss with Dr. Zhang Xing, Deputy Director of the Center for Russian Studies at East China Normal University. He first elaborated on the effectiveness of the Minsk Agreement in resolving the conflict since its signing. Talking about the so-called new uh, Minsk Accords signed in uh, 2015, mm-hmm. it only achieved a very limited uh, positive role on limiting uh, military uh, confrontations between um, Ukraine government and uh, the militias in uh, eastern Ukraine. And overall, it failed. It uh, the, the spirit of reaching a political deal was, uh, I think, good and may be a uh, laid some foundation for future political negotiation, but uh, the real implementation of the accords on the ground overall was a failure. Given the limitations of this agreement, what's your assessment of the current situation regarding the Ukraine crisis, especially in light of the recent calls by the Chinese envoy to reflect on the Minsk agreement? The overall situation is uh, gloomy, I would say. Neither sides, I mean, Ukraine and Russia, thought was a practical uh, solution on the table, non-military solution to the conflict on the table. To various uh, degrees, uh, both sides thought the time on the, is on their side. Uh, both sides believe it's worth uh, biding their time. So if that's the perception of the reality, and uh, that's really not uh, helpful for any um, political settlement. 
other than the stalemate we see on the battleground, at least since uh, the second half of last year, other than that, there was also uh, some serious um, political and technical barriers towards reaching any political deal or political settlement, even the very basic ceasefire. Uh, for example, legally, Ukraine now cannot have a direct negotiation. Uh, legally, it, it doesn't allow itself to have any uh, direct negotiation uh, with the current uh, Russian government. Russian state on the other side believe that uh, if any uh, political negotiation can start, it needs to start with a set of uh, preconditions, including a very clear, uh, solid recognition of the reality, the status quo or reality on the battleground, including its de facto control of uh, the four regions in eastern and southern Ukraine. And these conditions now probably uh, was not acceptable by a large part of uh, both uh, uh, Ukraine political elites and a large part of Ukraine society. So if that's the case, any um, a solution, political solution, again, even basic ceasefire is very difficult to um, to be reached. Chinese government's recent proposal to um, reflect on the uh, effectiveness or the failure of the new uh, Minsk Accord, the post of uh, Minsk Accord 1 and the new Minsk Accord, I think it's a good suggestion. If we are still aiming for any uh, political solution out of this uh, very bloody, costly um, military confrontation, de facto war, I think to reflect on why the Minsk Accord failed to a large extent and uh, what kind of responsibility each side uh, in this uh, conflict need to uh, take is a good uh, starting point and uh, some soul-searching needs to be done for all parties involved if, again, if we are aiming for some genuine political solution uh, out of this uh, bloody bloody uh, military confrontation. Then how about NATO? Do you think NATO should engage in some self-reflection? How do you look at NATO in the Ukraine crisis at this point and its impact on prolonging this conflict? I think NATO as a political actor definitely needs its own soul-searching self-reflection on its role in this uh, prolonged military conflict, starting um, actually uh, way be- before 2022. I think that's also uh, the value of uh, Chinese government's proposal. But unfortunately, as uh, the um, de facto war prolonged for almost two years, I don't see the uh, NATO and uh, especially its leading countries having any interest or feel necessary to do that kind of uh, self-reflection. If in the early period of the conflict, there might there was some room to do so. Now, actually, the um, window uh, of opportunity to engage in such um, uh, self-reflection is actually significantly uh, reduced. As the war uh, went on, NATO as a collective entity now had a very clear assessment of the, the cause for the conflict and where this conflict is going and what the role NATO should be uh, playing in, in this, this conflict. So it is a very one-sided judgment of the reality, and also it's a, it's a role to uh, unconditionally support Ukraine to uh, fight against Russia. So um, there was almost no uh, incentive to do the kind of uh, software question uh, you just mentioned right now. 
Recently, former Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson conducted an interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which has garnered widespread attention. In the interview, Putin mentioned that Russia has not yet accomplished its objectives in Ukraine, and hinted at the possibility of negotiations if the United States stops its weapon support to Kiev. But the White House National Security Council swiftly rejected Putin's proposal for talks on Russia-Ukraine matters this time. How do you perceive these respective stances of Russia and the United States? Indeed,、uh, President Putin's interview with、uh, Tarkasan very clearly indicated this wide、uh, disparity or gap between the kind of、uh, historical and political vision Putin holds and、uh, the current. Uh, we might say political establishment in the West holds regarding not only regarding the、uh, Ukrainian crisis, but regarding、uh, the nature of、uh, post Cold War world order, the role of Russia in it, and、uh, the the foundation of、uh, Russia-West relations, etc.、Uh, so uh, those fundamental questions that go even beyond、uh, the current military battles between Russia, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, this gap has been the major、uh, cause for what we see、uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and between Russia and、uh, the West, starting not only from 2022,、uh, but I would say、uh, starting from late 1990s. In the interview, we can see very clearly President Putin essentially gave a history lesson to the interview, as well as the targeted audience.、Mm-hmm. Uh, a large part of it is in the in the West. That gap was there, is there, and will probably continue to be there for a very long time, and it's not easy to resolve that. Putin's basic stance on the negotiation has been there for since the start of the military operation, to almost two years ago. So, basic stance is always Russia is waiting for, is open for negotiation. But the preconditions I already discussed, described、uh, in the previous question, my answer to the previous question, the pre different type of different sets of preconditions Russia set as the beginning point of any political negotiation become uh, uh, now become even harder to be accepted by Ukraine by the Western country that are involved in in, in this process. So the door for negotiation from Russia's perspective is always open. But the preconditions are very hard to 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 be accepted. And on the other hand,、uh, U.S.、Uh, government official response to that, I wouldn't call this as the、um, absolute rejection of any negotiation, because it was only on from one、uh, top、uh, U.S. government official.、Uh, I don't think that's the uh, uh, absolute rejection of uh, uh, the possibility of any negotiation. But、uh, I think the challenge for any political negotiation to to start. Is still how to、um, bridge the gap, this large gap, and、uh, unfortunately, this gap become、uh, politically increasingly difficult to be bridged. I think the challenge is still that whether there is a possibility to figure out some political settlement that can at least bridge part of the gap,、uh, so that the political negotiation can be uh, uh, started. Again, I wouldn't see the、um, statement from any single political figure in the U.S. government as a complete end of. Uh, political negotiation, either between Russia and Ukraine, or between Russia and、uh, the collective Western, Western countries.
Mm-hmm. Then Professor Ambassador Zhang Jun mentioned China's commitment to multilateralism and global peace efforts. What role do you believe China can play in facilitating the implementation of the Minsk Agreement or promoting dialogue among the parties involved in the Ukraine crisis at this point? Well, China can and、uh, has already played, and I guess it will continue to play as a country, as a polit- key political actor that still push for. Peaceful solution of the conflict, and also by emphasizing this、uh, historical complication of the root cause of the conflict. This position also enjoys wide support from a large part of the developing countries, the global south, beyond China itself. Having said that, to play a direct mediator role, which was、uh, a widely spread、uh, idea during the early stage of the Ukraine-Russian conflict. For China to play such a mediator role, to me now become a little bit、uh, harder to、uh, to to see because for a genuine mediator role, both sides in the conflict need to take this country as a genuinely neutral、uh, actor. But unfortunately, as、uh, the、uh, the war prolonged for two years, for from a large part of the、uh, Western world. And to some extent, some extent recently, I see from Ukraine, those actors、uh, increasingly look China as part of the conflict, not as a genuine neutral actor. If that's the perception from Ukraine, especially if it's from Ukraine, then that would make、uh, the room for China to play a genuine mediator role、uh, very difficult to to materialize. The same reason for countries like Austria. Now uh, it's uh, very difficult to、um, imagine、uh, Austria can play a mediator role. Which was、uh, a, a role、uh, many people attached to、uh, Austria at the early stage of the middle conflict.、Right? So, because at least one party in the conflict, or maybe both parties in the conflict, look at Austria as part of the conflict,、uh, directly involved in the conflict. For the same logic, China, Austria, or early on、uh, Germany, those were all countries that are, are, are believed、uh, may play a mediator role. Now, for me, it's very difficult to see. These countries to play a mediator role.、Uh, Turkey might be still in a relatively favorable position to do so. But anyway, on top of the single countries, I think China can play another role is through its、uh, involvement in the United Nations,、uh, the Security Council. There are still some roles for UN to be the ultimate、uh, provision of、uh, genuine、uh, global public goods,、uh, including in this case a, a mediator on a global level. Uh, so China may play some indirect role to、uh, encourage United Nations to figure out or send a delegation as a mediator in the in the conflict. I see that become somewhat still very difficult, but somewhat politically maybe more acceptable in in the immediate run. That was Dr. Zhang Xin, Deputy Director of the Center for Russian Studies at East China Normal University. Coming up, international influencers living in China are hitting back as they face a fresh round of U-intentioned Western acquisitions. You are listening to Road Today. We'll be back after a short break.
You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Foreign internet influencers living in China are hitting back as they face a fresh round of accusations of being cultivated by the Chinese government to shape narratives in favor of China. U.S. government-funded think tank, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, recently published a report tagging these influencers as a propaganda tool to promote or defend China's position. How true are those accusations? What's behind such narratives, and who has been pushing them? My colleague Tiu Yun earlier talked with Andy Barham, New Zealand-born journalist based in China, Mario Cavlo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group, and Edward Lehman, founder and managing director of a China-based law firm Lehman Lee and Shu. Let's take a listen. Let me first start with、um, Andy. What was your first reaction when you learned about the Asby report? Upset, frustrated, or outrageous? Wow, my first reaction was actually I was quite peeved because I heard about it first from a reporter from the Financial Times. Actually, I just got an email saying、um, there's a report coming out that features you.、Um, do you want to comment? And、mm. it was like, I, I, who wrote it? What is the report? I haven't read it. How can I comment? And he was pushing me for more comment. It's like I said to him, "Do you think this is fair to ask me to comment on a report I've never read? Can you send it to me?"、Mm. He was like, "Oh, sorry, we can't send it to you. It's it's hasn't been released yet." I was like, "Well, how come you have it?" Oh, they're releasing it to certain media. I said, "Oh, that's great. I'm a journalist as well. Can you release it to me?" And there was no luck. So, <laughs> the the first time I heard、oh. about it was literally from a reporter, and he refused to tell me any more information. So, it was just yeah, I was peed off. Mm. And have you read the whole report? I did. I read it after he posted his story, which was、right. uh, the next day.、Um, actually, I asked him to contact. Well, he still hadn't told me who wrote it, but I said, "Can you contact the the writers、mm. and see if they're willing to give it to me?" And he took about another day to reply.、Um, at six in the morning, China time. And、right. said, um, then they're not willing to give the report. So, should I take it? You're not going to comment.、Uh, mm. And before I could even reply, he had posted the story. So, it's just shady behaviour all around. I've read the report now, as usual,、um, as their other reports. It's just laughable,、uh, a joke, really, to、right. anyone who actually knows China. After reading the report, which part、um, impressed you or shocked you most? Well, firstly, the whole thing's absurd. But the thing that、um, probably was the most interesting for me is that. Um, on the day they released the report, they actually, but by that evening, they deleted large parts of it,、mm. uh, including mention that they were funded by the U.S. State Department, which they conveniently deleted.、Right. They also deleted a large part of my section. So, in my part, they had initially said that I've in New Zealand, I spent a lot of time working in media.、Mm. I went to Cambodia and worked for a radio station there,、um, and then they said、uh, something along the lines of. At one point, Andy must have chosen to become a propagandist instead of being a real journalist.、Mm. I was like, "Wow, that's shocking!" Then they deleted it, and as we all know, anyone who has, you know, any、um, what's the word, a report or a think tank agency that is respectable, they would mention things they've repeated and, and put a reason why. There's no mention whatsoever, and I asked them about it.、Uh, they didn't reply to me, so、um, it's just part of the course. Shocking from Aspi.、Mm. Do you think you, you've been unfairly or wrongly portrayed in the report? To be honest, my part, I don't think it's very unfair. I'm more worried about other people because in the report, I think I'm the only one who actually works for Chinese state media. So、mm. their whole、um, argument basically is that people are being paid by the government or or whatever. The fact of the matter is, I do work for Chinese state media. So in my opinion, my part is actually 
fairly accurate, although right. what they're trying to imply isn't really fair. But I'm more concerned about the other people, the young students, mm. uh, international students who are visiting China and just doing what young people do, which is creating content, filming their travel where they are, filming their daily lives, uh, studying in China, and being accused of being CCP, I say CCP because that's what they say, mm. CCP operatives. Um, I think it must be devastating for young students coming to China to, to face that, especially with the anti-China sentiment that's around the world at the moment. So I, I more feel for those kind of people uh, as opposed to myself. Mm. Have, have you talked to any of them, those young students, about this? No, I haven't, but I've talked to others who, who were mentioned in the report, um, actually, who have been quite devastated by it. Um, they're not students at the moment, but I know of people who were featured in the report. I won't mention who they are, but couldn't sleep, um, felt, you know, really targeted because uh, mm. it's not nice to feel like um, you might face repercussions back home or uh, limits to your career just because you spent some time in China and shared accurately uh, the, the time you had here. Mm. I think um, it's, it's devastating. Mm. So, so you're saying your work or your life hasn't been affected that much? Oh yeah, my life hasn't been affected um, really at all. In fact, it's it's helped me find some new friends and make some new connections, right. to be honest. But I would just worry for those other people. Um, for me, I'm used to it. It's part of the course. It's part of my job. Um, and to be honest, SB does not have anywhere near the reach um, or the power they used to have. This report hardly got picked up by mainstream media. I know mm. I was mentioned in the Sydney Morning Herald, Financial Times, um, some in some random Indian news, um, and that's about it. So I think people are slowly starting to see, and Aspie's losing a lot of power. So for me, I haven't really faced much um, change at all. And that's the positive side of the story. And to Mario, uh, it seems you're, you're not specifically named by Aspie, but from my observation, you, you definitely belong to the group targeted by Aspie. So as a communication expert, what's your interpretation of the Aspie report? Sure. And, and Andy made the key point, which is that in his case, he really clearly and specifically does work with a national Chinese media outfit. So in America, this would be no different than saying that, you know, Andy works for uh, a Wall Street Journal or, or New York Times or Fox News. Well, uh, Andy, if I'm correct, it's Shanghai Daily, so it's regional, but still, uh, that would be like the New York Times, New York, you know, or the LA Times. So the interesting thing for me, as you mentioned, uh, Tu Yin, I'm in a different situation. We have different reasons, but we're driven by the same underlying motivation, which is that, we only are acting to want to explain the real world of China to the world. Mm. And so that would be no different for me as, say, I'm an Italian-American, right? And I grew up in the 60s and, you know, I was born in 60. I was, say, in the mid-70s, I was a teenager, right? And, you know, back then, what became quite famous back in the United States in Hollywood we all love a good movie, was this the Godfather series of movies. And the Godfather series of movies was all about these very particular narratives of, very specifically, of Italian crime families, the mafiosa, that was a very real thing. And in fact, stretched all the way back to the home country in southern, mostly in southern Italy, from Naples on down to Sicily. Mm. Okay, well, that's fine, right up to the point where you are or are not listening to these stories portraying all Italians, you know, as mafiosa or just criminals mm -hmm. that are criminals. So all the way back to the immigration period of the early 1900s when the Italians immigrated to the United States, I can tell you how much racism and bigotry there was against them and the Irish as well. 
when they arrived in America. So all of this boils down to racism and bigotry, and it's all now being driven through the media, weaponized for political purposes. And I picked up on it all sort of accidentally about four years ago in my case. Now I'm a non-resident senior fellow for the Center for China and Globalization, which puts me a bit more in the spotlight. I have other organizations in media. I'm a regular contributor to China Daily, but I'm a contributor, which means every few weeks they ask me to write an article about some aspect of culture or society or geopolitics, and then that gets published in China Daily. And for me, this all began about four years ago. So I don't do it because it's a full-time job. I don't work for Chinese media. I do it because I unexpectedly moved to China 24 years ago. I'm now in my 25th year in China. Mm. And the fact of the matter is China is nothing like what the West tells us it is. And that's the problem. And Andy is in there as being someone who really is specifically a career Chinese media person. God bless him and good for him. But this puts him directly in the firing line. Guys like myself are slightly to the side of being directly in the firing line, but we still are. For example, recently, it's not necessarily just media and organizations like ASPE. So you got media institutions like ASPE, you have the United States government itself, you have the UK parliament. All of these at the very highest levels of society are feeding these negative and bigoted and false narratives. It even extends to universities. Recently, there's a prestigious professor at a prestigious university who has been attacking people like myself and some others only because of the fact that we take the time to explain things about China. Say, excuse me, see this thing about China that you're saying? It's just not true. Let me explain how and why it's not true. And for that, we're subject to the same problems as, as Andy is. They create this narrative of saying, oh, you're a troll. You say good things about China because you're paid by the CPC. CC, they say CCP. So it's this disparaging narrative. But if you say good things about Italy or Germany or Italian or France, France or Brazil, does somebody immediately turn around and say, hey, you're being paid to say those things about that country? No, mm. of course not. But Mario, are you going to write an article to counter this uh, report? You say for China Daily, you just mentioned. Do you have any plans? I'm sure within another couple of weeks, I'll hear from China Daily again, and, and they'll ask me to write another article. The last one was about the Asian the Asian Games in Hangzhou, which was just a you know a couple months back. You know, those are always great opportunities to just again tell the world about what's really going on in China. And when Andy gets very upset, and so do I, and a lot of the other guys, when we read stuff about China and we go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm here 24 years. I've got a Chinese family. And I live like a local. I'm not a coddled expat in a foreign compound in a villa with a with a driver, a car and a driver. I live like a local with my Chinese wife and family and, and my Chinese mother-in-law who, who doesn't speak a wink of English. And so I, I know what's going on in this country. And so when I read stuff that's happening, that they say these accusations that I know are false, it really upsets. It's really upsetting. Mm. I'm not sure how, how upset Andy would be, but uh, Andy, previously, when you saw Western media reports um, you thought were not in line with the truth, you would make some videos to, to debunk them. But, but this time, when you yourself were, were targeted as a, or tagged as a foreign propagandist by ASPE, it seems you haven't made um, a counter video yet, right? 
No, I haven't yet, and that's the thing. Um, <laughs> I'm just too busy, to be honest. Right. And I just don't think. Yeah. I just don't think the ASB report has had uh, much impact. I do plan mm. to do a video. Right. It's just that this all happened at the end of um, December when we were we were wrapping up so many. Uh, projects on you know the 10th year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative things that are much more important then I went home for Christmas um, so I just haven't had the time to do it I, it's in the back of my mind and I'm working on it but I've just got to think of a nice angle and a way to really simply put across how unfair mm. SB is in this report and in their reports in general so I think definitely I will be doing it but to be honest SB is a falling entity I think so it's not urgent for me mm, but it's still like you said, uh, it's got some uh, fund from the uh, U.S. State Department. It might be there for some time. But talking about um, fighting back against such narratives uh, created by uh, think tanks, they call themselves think tanks like uh, ASPE, there's another influencer that we are, maybe most of us are quite familiar with, is um, American Jerry Colwell. And I, I understand you, you know him uh, personally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So we've can had you, a lot of discussions. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? And I know he's been doing coffee business here in, in China. And I, <laughs> yeah, I've watched a lot of his videos too. Yeah, I think he's having a bit of a break at the moment. Right. Um, so I won't say too much, but I, I know for a while that he was really upset by the SB report and other mm. reports like it. Um, he did an interview uh, that came out a couple of days ago uh, talking about it um, and how he uh, really wants to pursue legal action. So right. he's working on a lot of that stuff. I, I can't say much more, but definitely he is working hard to make it at least so that the US State Department can't fund pieces of so-called research like this because the question it's is propaganda yeah yeah propaganda should the u.s state department be making uh, reports like this that are putting american citizens in the firing line overseas unfairly and perhaps Mario and edward would know more about that um than me yes yeah i think it's definitely a great conversation to have like you just mentioned cowell uh, recently published a uh, letter he had sent to the u.s department of state and he said the u.s state department may have used the funding to unfairly attack U.S. citizens in China via ASPE and ask mm. the U.S. State Department to, to seize further funding of ASPE. So let me turn to our legal expert, um, Ed. How may such yeah. a letter be received by the State Department? W will it be totally ignored? It's hard to say. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that this is going to be the most effective way forward. I mean, I, I mm. got a copy of his letter read it. I mean, it's addressed to uh, James P. Rubin, who's the special envoy and the coordinator of global, the Global Engagement Center. This is the outfit that uh, both Mario and Andy have mentioned had, had helped fund this report. At least initially it was, it was written, and then all of a sudden that was uh, removed, which is what, you know, Jerry Cole talks about in his particular letter. You know, he's mentioned 39 times in this report, and that he's not pandering and he's not been guided into uh, you know, his decision-making process or his reporting process. So, I mean, it's difficult to say. I would, as a lawyer, this this isn't really the basis or a grounds on which you're going to be able to get some sort of satisfaction. I mean, uh, I, I think it's a good step that you're at least documenting that this is inaccurate and what they've done is incorrect. Whether you can receive direct relief from them is questionable. It wouldn't be the right way to go forward. I think it wouldn't be the best way. It is a way to get started. Right. And certainly one has to hang their hat on some sort of uh, 
legislation or some sort of you know remedy that would allow him relief as an American citizen that's been wronged in this report and that's that's been funded by the United States government. In this particular case, it's the Global Engagement Center. That's where he has to go and you know probably file in the you know in the Southern District of New York, which is uh, one of the primary places in the United States that decides quite big decisions, a lot of them having to do with finance and yeah. um, because all the, the bourses are located there, NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. So there's a lot of big cases that are decided there, but also other uh, governmental related cases such as this. So I think he was going to have to probably retain counsel. The issue I think that, that he has, as you know, Andy does or Mario does, anyone is that, you know, he's an individual and right. as an individual, you know, the, a great way to uh, earn a small fortune is start out with a big fortune and get yourself involved in a lawsuit, <laughs> you know, because it, it costs a lot of time, money and effort to uh, to be able to be engaged in a lawsuit. And I mean, this goes back to a little bit about what Andy was saying when, when you were asking him, has he had the time or uh, the inclination to do something or Mario uh, with the ASPE report themselves? I'm often reminded of what we call the Dreisand effect. I mean, way back when, before all the digitalization of everything, you know, the California whatever board of um, coastlines were was taking pictures of all the houses that were along the coast, and uh, you know, Barbara Streisand objected to having her home filmed because she didn't want people to know where she lived, mm-hmm. and so then she went and made a big deal out of this thing. Please don't, you know, uh, photograph my home. Well, nobody was looking at it. There's so many homes on the coastline anyway. But the fact that Barbara Streisand had pointed out that she didn't want her home filmed made it that everyone knew and wanted to see where her home was located. So this goes back to the Aspie <laughs> report. You know, is this, are we going to create, you know, is this thing going to get buried like the end of Indiana Jones, you know, in some kind of vault somewhere and then carted off into nowhere? Or are you going to do a Barbara Streisand thing? by bringing attention to the 120 or so folks in, in, in the report that well, I had read, you know, 63 pages or not. I mean, it's kind of a slow burn, that that report, frankly. It's not, there's no gotchas in there that I see. Um, Ed, you quoted the case of Barbara Streisand, but Barbara Streisand is really famous. But what about um, Jerry Quall? It, it would be a very tough journey for him to complete, right? He's got this courage to launch this um, legal action against um, the Institute. But how likely can he reach his goal? I mean, I've read in the reports that that he is going to be suing in multiple jurisdictions. Um, yes. And, but I, I have not been able, I mean, certainly in the Southern District of New York, which is what all this is on electronic filing and everything's available. I, I could not find anything where, where a case has been filed. It's difficult unless you know the specific jurisdiction in these other, in, within these other places. I don't know if there are multiple jurisdictions in the United States, multiple jurisdictions around the world. But well, he said it's I mean, in right. multiple countries, not just in the States. Uh, I'm not right. sure which countries yeah, and I mean, if you look at ASPE just in general, I mean, it's it's funded by, you know, a wide range of people. I mean, including Lockheed Martin, BAE Systems, North, Northrop Grumman, Thales Group, Ray Athlon Technology, Microsoft, Oracle, you know, Oracle Australia, sorry, Tesla and Google. So, uh, and then there's a number of nations, Japan, the Netherlands, Israel, Canada, and the United States and the United Kingdom, all in some way, shape or form fund this operation. I mean, the budget 
uh, like Andy was saying, I mean, it's not small. I mean, it's a, it's about $11 million a year. It's a company limited by guarantee. All of this is actually open for public inspection and you can go and you can see every, you know, at aspie.org.au. And so I went on there myself, mm. had a look, see. So as a public sort of a not-for-profit think tank, whatever they're calling themselves, they have to be able to publish who's giving them money and where it all comes from. So the question is, I mean, obviously I would assume that there would be some sort of action brought in Australia. I mean, here's the issue with regards to him in particular is that, is he a public person? So, I mean, uh, or not, and is the cause of action going to be some sort of defamation or not? I mean, mm-hmm. and, you know, or, or, or some derivative thereof. And, you know, the question is, is he a public figure? Mm-hmm. So I can say something about Tom Cruise, you know, whatever, it could be completely wrong. And he's a public figure. I mean, one is not liable for that because Tom Cruise is a public figure. Right. Tom Cruise, however, you know, can say something about uh, about me, and I'm not necessarily a public figure, and uh, that might that would be considered defamation because I'm I'm a private individual. I mean, whatever you want to call that. Mm. But so there's a whole bunch of rules that need to be followed, and then is he categorized as is it, is it going to be defamation as an individual? Is he considered to be a public figure because he's got 20 million? What makes one a public fi- uh, figure? That would have to be determined by the trier of fact. So that would be in, in common law jurisdictions, that would be a judge and jury. They would determine that in a civil law jurisdiction that would be by a codification. So where he's going with the cases, it's hard to say. All mm-hmm. I know is, is that it's extremely expensive, you know, uh, and, and th- there probably would be not that many lawyers, maybe there would, that would take on a contingency basis. In some jurisdictions, they don't permit uh, contingency. So I think he's got a, a bit of an uphill battle. I think that, uh, I do think it's something to test the the boundaries of mm-hmm. these things. And I, I applaud him for doing that. I, I don't discourage that. I, I think that uh, these uh, things need to be tested. And as a result, um, you know, good good law comes out of uh, sort of bad cases like this or these sort of injustices, you know. But like I said, unless I can kind of get into what the filings are Mm. or talk to him or his lawyer, it's difficult to know whether he'll succeed. But writing the first letter is is just, it's just the beginning. And these things take, certainly take time. The wheels of justice are are certainly not swift. Right. Uh, Andy, uh, has uh, Jerry told you anything about this, uh, you know, litigation? He has, but he he also has told me he doesn't really want too many people um, to know what he's planning to do. Obviously, I'm not mm. sure if that's a legal tactic or whatever. So I, I think I'd better not speak on behalf of um, sure. Jerry here. But I did want to add a couple of things. Because um, okay. Mario was talking before about, um, you know, someone's paying Aspie to do research. Um, I would argue this isn't even research because Aspie has never contacted, for example, me. Mm. Um, they did a, a, a whole report, 63 pages, um, about so-called foreign influences in China. And not once did they contact me. I'd be more than happy to chat with them and answer their questions, you know. And I think if they talked with the targets or with their subjects, it's going to create a more uh, balanced and useful uh, piece of research. But that's obviously not what they're trying to do. Mm. They're writing something, like Mario said, that pushes um, a narrative. Then Edward touched on the idea um, of foreign influences, blah, blah, blah. Aspie, this is the funny thing. The whole report accuses us of being... Um, influences for a foreign government, for the Chinese government, but is actually ASPE who are the foreign influences. Uh, a large chunk of their money comes from foreign governments um, and entities. In mm. fact, in Australia, ASPE is listed under the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme because their whole intention is to, their whole modus operandi is to take money from foreign governments and entities and try to in, 
influence the Australian government. So they're actually listed by law in Australia as foreign influencers. So this is just absolutely laughable. Another thing I wanted to add, because Mario touched on, sorry, I've taken all these notes. Mm. Mario touched on the idea that, you know, I work for Chinese state media, so I'm up for attack. And that is true. But um, a lot of people don't realize it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, which came first. I work for Chinese media because I believe in China. It's not the other way around. I don't believe in China because it's my job, if you know what I mean. So mm. I think that's important to point out. And it, it's, I just want to add, add something, if you, if you don't mind. Here. Okay. I, I mean, I've, I've actually lived in China a very long time, um, since the 80s. And I mean, I've been on China media, you know, as, as a commentator of some stripe, similar to what Mario is talking about, mm. uh, for 25 years. Right. And and during the all that time, and, every, and, and all kinds, I mean, new media, China Daily, you name it. I mean, there's certainly the radio and television and everything in between. And, and I mean, local stations and, and everything else. But uh, and, and I mean, no one's ever said, you know, to me you know, over that period of time, you know, this is we're going to guide you into this direction or this is the way we want you to come up with your angle or your report. I mean, that so that's what I sort of I, I, I'm reading this sort of 63 page report. Mm. And um, I mean, it mentions, you know, there's people like Edgar Snow, the very, you know, who was in Yenon. I mean, he was writing his thing. I don't think that they were necessarily paying off Edgar Snow to write, you know, Red Star over China. I think that he genuinely believed and that was his genuine in- interpretation of that, which, I mean, there are two sides to that and whether that was accurate or not is, is up for a historian to decide. But I mean, I believe he, he meant what he meant and that they were saying that in this particular report that the, he was being guided. You know, there was the, there was quite a group there. I mean, and it wasn't just him as a journalist. So I'm, I'm just trying to draw a parallel to, to my own experiences, at least with China media, is that they're not, and, and it, it reiterates what Andy mm. is saying, what Mario says, um, that there isn't sort of a minder there with a ruler saying, you better mm. either answer this way or else, or we're going to cut the piece or we're going to do whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I've not experienced that personally. Maybe other people have. Mm. And certainly, um, you know, ASB should should reach out to try to find some explanation with that. There is some mention with regards to one person who works for for Shanghai Daily that has a, a sort of an editor that that helps them out or has to go through an approval process. That they that was me. That was me. And that's that was me. And that's actually not correct. Mm. <laughs> okay. So I, maybe maybe I could talk about that really quickly because I really agree with Edward. Um, Chinese state media never in my experience has given me told me to say anything in fact it's quite the opposite mm. i'm the one who needs to coax shanghai daily into letting me do this more political content right. um so this is one of the things that asb doesn't and will never understand if they never get in touch so my part of the report talks about um you know how i'm being molded and styled into um having an adverse adversarial stance towards foreign media this is all my um my doing. It took me five years to convince my bosses at Shanghai Daily to let me do this because mm. they love friendly, fluffy, uh, happy stories. Um, so it's absolutely um, incorrect. Uh, and the last part uh, that Edward just mentioned as well, which said that I have an editor who I need to put content through and uh, blah, blah, blah. That's my colleague, Wang Haoling. And they talk about her as my studio manager she's she's a colleague on the same level as me we both make decisions together and the only time i ever turn to her for advice is is when i want to understand more about um, a chinese aspect a cultural aspect 
of something I'm working on because she's Chinese. So of course mm. I'm going to turn to um, you know Chinese who know who understand China much better than I ever will. So that's another thing that was actually inaccurate uh, in the my section of the report. And I've told Aspie that, but they uh, refuse to change anything. So it just stays how it is. That was Andy Borum, New Zealand-born journalist based in China, and Mario Kovlo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group, and Edward Lehman, founder and managing director of law firm Lehman Lee and Shu. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.